any thoughts or questions or anything from either 1 Samuel or from Psalm 34? Anybody? Yes. We need, yeah, could somebody hand up? Could, could I get someone to run a mic here? Um, Kirby, will you run a mic? Kirby will run a mic. That would be Natalie right there. You're not wanting to get up, I'm sorry. <laughs> Natalie couldn't be bothered. <laughs> Could you explain again the meaning of the immediacy of God? Sure. So the term immediate um, is, is in its root form contrasted with mediate. So um, mediation is simply something going between. So if so right now, you and I are speaking immediately. If we had a go-between, if Kirby were sending messages, it would be, it would be mediated. Okay? So we talk about Jesus' mediatorial priesthood. It's because in the throne room of God, in his presence, on our behalf, he's pre- in between man and God is this priest. He's mediating. Um, and so uh, we, like, for instance, in the Catholicism, all of your prayers and all of your work with God is mediated by the human earthly priests. It's mediation. And so one of, the, one of the doctrines of Luther, the priesthood of the believer, is that we have immediate access to God. Now, immediate has taken on the context of instantaneous. It's an implication. If there's nothing blocking it, if I have, if I have immediate access, then it's as quick as I want. But that's really a secondary implication. It's, take, it's the primary meaning now that the word is used, but in its actual meaning, it's a secondary implication. Immediate is not... Um, mediated. So God is immediate. Okay, so let's back up. So you've, you've usually got two options when you're dealing with God. You can have a God who's part of creation and he's immediate, and, but you end up then with like pantheism. God is this podium and God is in the trees and God is in the rocks and God's part of the created order. He's immediate, but he's small. Or by definition, God has to be outside of the order. The other word we use for that is transcendental. He transcends. He's above. He's beyond the created order. And if you just have a transcendent God, then you start moving towards the deist clockmaker God or even the the constructions of God in Islam or in in, uh, Judaism, where God is so far removed. He's so far away. He's so righteous. He's so so, um, big that he's distant, right? And so one of the, the truths of the God of the Bible is he is both transcendent. So you get passages where, like, who will you compare me to? Who is like me? Declaring the end from the beginning. You know, this God's that. He's not like everything else. And yet, God's rebuke in Job. In fact, turn, probably the, the immediacy of God is seen most clearly in Job, to my mind, at the end last chapters where God is rebuking Job. Um, where God insists he is intimately and immediately on hand running the universe, running the world. Um, you know, we, we talk about laws of physics and laws of science, and, and they're useful, but they can begin to, um, in our mind, become real things. In one sense, gravity is Jesus holding things down. We can name it, we can describe it, how many forces of pressure, but at the end of the day, he's holding all things together by his word. And I don't like to think of it like God's got this program called gravity and it's running things. And no, but this is. But even among Christians, there's this notion that like what normally happens is nature doing her thing, or the laws of the universe and physics running, and miracles are when God sort of interrupts the program. You know, 
Um, and the description in Job is God running the program. Um, he's immediate. See, if, if the laws of physics and the laws of science are really things as opposed to repeatable, observable patterns that we see and we're meant to see, we're meant to search and find out. But if they're actually things like God, on the, you know, one of the days of creation, God made gravity. Now gravity's doing all the work and he's sitting back. Then yeah, when Jesus ascends into heaven against the laws of gravity, God's doing something. But really, it's gravity doing the work and God's is mediated. His ruling of the world is mediated by these things. That's not the picture of God that I see in the Bible. Granted, what we're about to read is poetic, it's metaphor. But the metaphor is absolutely meant to show immediacy. Closeness, imminence. These are all synonyms in that sense for what we're discussing. So I'm in Jeremiah, not Job, because I'm stupid. Hold on. I saw J. I thought I was good. I was trying to have, keep some mind contact talking. I saw J. I'm good. It's a much shorter J word um, than the one I had. Hold on. Um, give me one second. Okay, let's pick it up in Job chapter ooh, 36. No. That's Elihu. Where's God show up? Yeah, 38. Okay. And what God's basically going to do, because Job's dealing with the problem of evil, why do bad things happen to people who haven't done anything unusually bad, right? Um, and basically God's answer is going to be, you don't get to question me, Job, because you're not, you, you don't have, I, I run everything, I know what's going on, I see the whole picture, and I'm wise, and so if you want to really challenge, it's one thing to ask, like, Daddy, I don't understand. It's another thing for Job to say, I wish I could call him to court. Explain yourself, God. Yeah, you don't, God's like, yeah, you don't get to do that. Because <laughs> you don't know where I store the lightning. And, and you don't know where I store the rain. <laughs> and you don't know, and so he starts going through this list of things. Um, 38, when the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress her action like a man. I will question you, and you will make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the world? Tell it to me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? Um, let me jump down. Okay, then verse 8. Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I make clouds its garment, thick darkness its squaddling band and prescribed its limits, and set bars and doors, and said, thus far you shall come, and no further. Now, in one sense, we'd say, well, the moon and gravity and all of that is what makes the tides go this far and not any further. And God's like, yeah, and I'm doing that. He's not, he's, he's claiming immediacy. Um, and if it was just that, I'd say, okay, it's just maybe poetry. But keep going. Um, verse 19. Where is the way to the dwelling of light? Where is the place of darkness? that you may take it to its territory, that you may discern the paths of its home. You know where they were born, and the number of your days is great. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow? Have you seen the storehouses of hell? Again, absolute poetry. We're not to believe there's really like, you know, Warehouse 37 and, and it's the snow. But it's, again, intimate immediacy. It's like God's governing of the weather is like as if he had a storehouse and he went and got some snow. I mean, that, that's the picture. It gets even more immediate. Um... Verse 31, can you bind the chains of the Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth Maseroth in their season? These are names of constellations and stars. Or can you guide the bear with its children? So what God is saying is the movement of the stars in heaven, he is guiding and leading them out. And again, that's not to say 
that gravity and all the, th- all the things that we've observed are not at work. The point is, God is at work in them. Let's keep going. Um, probably the most amazing one for me is verse 39. Can you hunt the prey for the lion? Which means, I think, when you're watching, you know, planet Earth or the Nature Channel, and you watch the lioness stalking the elk, there is a very true and biblical sense God is doing that. He is stalking the prey. For the, I mean, in with and on top of the, the animal doing it is God doing it. Um, or satisfy the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in their thicket. Who provides the prey for its raven when its young ones cry to God for help? I mean, have you ever stopped to realize every bird chirping is chirping to God? And you start to get this picture of a God who is close and at hand. That's, that's also true, even as God is bigger and greater than the universe. He is close and intimately at hand. That's what David's trying to emphasize, that, that God is in here in this room with us in the sense that it's before his face, his eye is on us, his ear is upon us, and he is acting in, right now in this room as much as he's acting outside. He's not far away letting the program run its course. He is present and at work and active. That, that's what I mean by immediate as opposed to immediate. Does that? Yeah. Okay, that's, that was a long answer, I know. But, it's, but the point is, it's a very practical truth because I think the temptation for us when we're in suffering is to think God's far, far, far away. And of course, in some abstract concept, he knows because he knows all. I think it's helpful. His eye is on us. His ear is hearing your cry, and he's aware, and he knows. You know that's this a setup in Exodus is meant to show this is why God's about to do everything He's doing because He sees and He hears and He remembers and He knows what's going on. Um, yes, Jamie, Mike needs a microphone. So we literally just walked in and my wife's going, how do you have a question already? (laughs) So you were talking about God's omnipotence. Last night, Lydia asked me a question that kind of stumped me that has to go along with omnipotence. She goes, dad, why did God even create the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Mm. Um, That's a great question. I, I would, uh, I would, Go to Ephesians 1 to try to get it. At the end of the day, we have implications and we have hints and suggestions. Um, my answer is going to be, I think God created the tree of the knowledge of good and evil so that he could ultimately put his glory on display through the redemption of people who ate it. I mean, in other words, flat out, part of the plan is that man would eat the tree. I mean, I, I think that, yeah, and I'll... I'll, I'll uh, I'll try to justify that answer from Ephesians 1, um, which, granted, it's, it's an implication, so we've got to be careful and not say what God has done beyond what God says he's done. But in Ephesians 1, we get some purpose statements. These are all things that are happening before time. Ephesians 1, 3 to 14 is one big, long sentence in Greek. And I wouldn't be surprised if we're not stuck in this one sentence for a month or two or three in the fall. Um, no, it's, it, no, it's massive. It, it basically is looking at nearly every aspect of our salvation, every member of the Trinity at work. You'll notice all the actors are divine, and, the, and we are the ones acted upon. Because all the pronouns, it's his will, his purpose, his plan, which he did. Which he, We are the recipients. We are the um, uh, object of the verbs. 
And so I'll just read the sentence first, and I'll zoom in on the part I want to get it. But I'm, and I'm going to emphasize in my reading the, the sovereign work and look at every member of the Trinity at work here. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ Jesus with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed upon us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to the purpose which he set forth, in Christ as a plan for the fullness of all time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first open Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. A couple things. So when we're looking at, and I think this passage is looking at a macro picture of, of all of time and space and history, when you look at that whole picture that goes all the way back to before time, um, when verse 11, I'm going to ride pretty hard. 11, in him we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things, according to the counsel of his will. The word for work is energo. We get energy from God is working all things. He's, he's working the hunting of the lion. He's working the rain coming down. He's working that you got to plug in rough things. He's working the Holocaust. He's working the bubonic plague. He's working the creeping of aphids. He's working the movement of the Pleiades and Orion. He's working the growth of cancer cells. He's working all things according to the counsel of his will. Um, including a tree in a garden. But even more zooming in, um, even more zooming in, I'd go to verse uh, 5 and 6. In, in love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. So we were chosen for a purpose. What was that purpose? To the praise of his glorious grace. So we're predestined and chosen with a purpose that we might praise his grace. Now, here's where I'm freely admitting I'm making an implication. I think it's a valid implication. Who needs grace? Sinners. Sinless people don't need grace. So if we were chosen before the foundations of the world to praise his grace, already in view is the fall. So... Um, I don't think it was as though man ate and then go, okay, what am I going to do? He had a plan. I, I think from eternity past, the father wants to show the glories of his son. He wants to show the glories of his son by creating a state of events that culminates in a redeemed people, people who fell and were redeemed, being redeemed by his son, seeing and glorifying him forever. I think that, that end game state where the son is seen and glorified is God's ultimate purpose in Christ. I think it ties up with later in the passage, the fulfillment of all things in him. And everything else is a means to that end. That, that's what I think. 
I think that, uh, according to Jonathan Edwards, a fallen and redeemed people will know God better than an unfallen people. Which is to say, the father knows he's a savior. The father knows his son is a savior. The father knows his son sacrificially would give himself. But without a context for that to occur, who else would know? The angels never directly praise God for his grace. No angel has ever received grace. There are angels who will get justice, and there are angels who are sinless. No angel has received grace. Um, So the only way God's grace can be put on display, the only way God's grace can be seen and therefore enjoyed and worshipped and magnified is a context that grace is needed. So again, I'm, I'm drawing implications, but in passages like that, we're getting the foundation purposes. It seems like the praise of his grace is pretty low in the foundation level of God's eternal purposes, which means already a need for grace has got to be equally foundational in his plan. So why did God put a tree in the garden? My guess, to get us to where we're headed as a, as a necessary. Now all that in no way mitigating man's responsibility the sinfulness of the choice, all those things as well. I mean, the picture of God's sovereignty is a God who the lion's hunting and God's hunting. You know, Genesis 50, 20, Joseph's brothers planned and purposed to sell him into slavery and so did God and they did it for evil and he did it for good. Like, there's a mystery at work, no doubt. But God's good purposes in setting up the snare in the garden is different from the man and the woman's and the snake's evil purposes in it. Similarly, but... That would be, I mean, I don't know if, if, if a young, how old is your daughter who has this? I don't know if, I mean, I, you try to explain it to an eight-year-old, I don't know. Um, <laughs> right. Well, and the other answer you can give is Deuteronomy twenty-nine twenty-nine: The secret things belong to the Lord, but the things revealed belong to us. Like, you know, dear, God has not come out and clearly said why. But he has said children obey your parents. Let's get busy with that one. No, no, I mean, but there is a sense in which, no, there is a sense in which what God's saying there is, it's, it's helpful, I think, for us to guess and surmise. We need to be very careful and recognize when we're stepping off the edge of, the metaphor I'll use is like thin ice. When you're stepping off solid ground and there's text under your feet, clear text that says stuff, and now you're moving off into implications and, and deductions, and now you're moving out in the ice. And there's, there's some validity in doing that, but just recognize the danger is and this can happen with systematic theology is you make some deductions and some inferences and you get so confident in them they become the foundation for your next level of deductions and inferences and before you know it you're three levels up and the entire thing is built upon a maybe at the first level you know um so i i would never want to move beyond the maybe and or it seems likely or i would appear to be and we know no for certain no it seems as though that's got to be in there, but he hasn't come out and said, here's why I did it. Um, so I'm trying to draw some inferences, but I also want to recognize you know, the, edge of the, the edge of the solid ground around on the ice. It's thick ice, I think, but we're, over, we're on ice now. So wouldn't die on that hill, wouldn't get in a fight over it. You know? But uh, yeah, Deuteronomy 29, 29 is a great passage. Because there's a sense in which, um, Jay Adams points this out, for people that want to just endlessly speculate on things that are outside the Bible, that really what we're trying to do is steal. God has said there's a subset. God knows all things. And God has revealed a subset of all things to us. And they're ours to worry about. The secret things belong to the Lord God. So there's two possessive groups. There's the things that belong to God and there's things that are for us. And the revealed things are for us. 
And um, there can be a temptation to ignore the revealed things. Be so busy figuring out, you know, whether Obama was the Antichrist or something. Oh, they're people. I'm telling you, I've talked to them. Um, and it's like, dude, go love your wife. Do some other, there's some revealed things I think you're not doing, <laughs> you know, that you should be busy about. So there, there is a, but that said, um, I, I, it's not wrong to sort of, huh, God intended from the very beginning for the praise of his grace. Huh. He intended grace to be praised. Huh. I mean, and, and that's what we're trying to do. Anyway. Anyone? Oh, Linda. So would that be kind of the same concept in Matthew 18 where um, the verse that says, if anyone causes one of these little ones to sin, well, and then also... Um, it is necessary that offenses may come, but woe to him through who may come? Or is that the different passage? No, it's the okay. one that says, but if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe yeah. in me to sin, and then also in verse 7 it says, woe to the world because of the things that cause people to sin. But really, I mean, yeah. we're already sinners, so yeah. it's not really anything that's causing us to do it other than our own sinfulness. But there are things that influence right. behavior. Well, let's just look at an even harder case. I, I will remind, well, remind you as if, that see, the danger with preaching is you, you spend all week thinking something through and it gets clear in your mind. You make your notes, then you preach, you think is a decent sermon, and you kind of walk in. Okay, now that should be settled. Everyone should get that. And then you're like, no, you gotta, you know, you gotta, you gotta say things over and over. The Bible, God's, read through Deuteronomy. I mean, it's just, there's a lot of repetition. God gets that we're dumb as sheep and we need to be told over and over again. So I just, so let me say again, uh, but you can, you can get a, a full treatment on this. My, my best attempt to lay out when I think the Bible talks about this was in our election and predestination four-week series, specifically week one. Um, there's a danger in naming things. Here, I'll give, you a, I'll give you an SAT word, reify, R-E-I-F-Y, reify. There's a danger in reifying is when you take abstract and you make it concrete by naming it, like gravity or Trinity, or anything like that. And the danger with naming is that when you name something, in essence, you're taking some level of power control over it. And we see that with Adam naming the animals, even naming the woman, right? The danger with, with naming these mysteries is we begin to think we understand them. And so people, you, you believe in the doctrine of the Trinity, this guy doesn't. I think what the Trinity represents is some very important truths. We can start to we could stop wondering and worshiping because we get so caught up in fighting over the Trinity. But we stopped. We just named a mystery. C.S. Lewis has this wonderful quote. Saying that birds fly south by instinct is simply to say we don't know why they fly south. <laughs> you know what I mean? There's a mystery at work there. So that's, that said, the name that we have given for this mystery um, is concurrence or compatibilism or the sovereignty of God. But it's absolutely a mystery. But it's a mystery the Bible puts forward. And so what I think the Bible teaches, I will attempt to show you with two or three passages in just a moment, is that events are 100% caused. The Bible can speak of the agent, the, get back to immediate and immediate. The immediate agent, us, as, no, the immediate agent, as, as being fully responsible, 100% responsible, and God as 100% responsible. That I can show you a number of events where God said, I did that, even as the text said, David did that, and Satan did that. And so we're either left with a contradiction, or we're left saying, I guess there's, this, there's a way that God can be 
Um, let me, the, best, the simplest example I can give you is this. Who wrote the book of Romans? Anybody? Who wrote the book of Romans? Paul? Okay, Paul? Paul and God? Collaborative effort. 50-50, 60-40, No, no, absolutely. Everything that Paul says, Paul said, he meant. When Paul talks about how he's longing for someone or I've become jealous for you, he's, it's, it's really Paul speaking. Paul is at work speaking in every word and phrase of Romans. God is at work speaking in every word and phrase of Romans. In one sense, we have almost like a 200% causality, right? Yes, Zeb? What? Tertius. Well, Tertius actually wrote the thing, yeah. He, he's Paul. No, that's my trick question I'll ask on like Bible trivia questions. Who wrote Romans? Tertius. Romans 16. I, Tertius, write this with my own hand. He's Paul's amanuensis. Paul authored Romans. Tertius actually put the pen to, pen to papyra or vellum. No, no, vellum would have come later, papyra. Um, um, so, so, no, ter- thank you, Zeb. Tertius, quite right. We've got to give honor where honor is due. So we see, or, or give you another example. Jesus Christ, is he God or man? 50, 50? 100, yeah, exactly. Hypos- oh, but see, hypos- we reify it, like, we get it now. No, we've named a mystery, we have not understood it. Hypos- and it's useful to do these things, because it guards error, right? So when it comes to the Trinity, I could, I'm getting ready to teach the youth, at uh, the, the counselors at Appenus, and one of the topics i got to cover is the Trinity. And I can cover the Trinity, what I can say positively, in about two minutes. The rest of the time is spent with it doesn't mean this, and it doesn't mean this, and it doesn't mean this, and it doesn't. Here's the Trinity. There is one God who exists simultaneously in three persons in fellowship. The Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God. The Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, so on and so forth. And there's one God. And then we get into all the different errors, people who try to, I think I understand, does that mean sometimes God acts as the Father, and sometimes, he, and that's modalism, Patrick, and then we move on to, the, right, and so most of the writings on the Trinity are largely guarding, these are wrong ways to solve the tension. The mystery is, three people are the one God. There's one God, and there's three people in fellowship who are the one God, and yeah, and we call that Trinity. And it's to the degree that we're, it's an agreed upon category with agreed upon bounds. It doesn't mean this and it doesn't mean this and it doesn't mean this. It's helpful. To the degree we think we understand it, it's dangerous. Because we think we understand it. We think we've mastered it, right? <laughs> right, 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 right. No, exactly. So in the same way, I, I believe in what I'm going to lay out to you as I think is called concurrence or compatibilism. Don't for a second, I think that means I can explain to you how it all works. It's more cordoning off where the mystery is. It's kind of like, the mystery is here, it's not over here. The mystery is right here. Let me give you some examples. So again, please do not th- I'm a staunch, staunch believer in the sovereignty of God and what I'm about to show you is the causality. I don't for a second think I understand how it all works. You know what I mean? It, I just think the Bible says it is. This is the way things are. I'm like, okay, this is the way things are. Um, and so, again, don't mistake the one for the other. Let's probably best example I already referenced is Genesis 50.20. Uh, let's go there. Um, and the grammar will not let you take an easy out. The grammar here is, is rough, especially in the Hebrew. Um, so the situation is this. Joseph's brothers are coming to him begging be- for mercy after their father Isaac, Jacob, has died. 
Um, their concern is maybe Joseph didn't whoop up on us because dad was alive, but now dad's dead. Maybe he's just been waiting for his revenge. And so they, they're, pretty, they're pretty cowardly. Um, look at verse 18, chapter 50, verse 18. His brothers came and said, and fell all down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, um, no, I said, where's the part where they remind him about how their father said to be nice to them? Hold on. Oh, 16. Okay, here we go. First, we'll go back to 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message. At first, they send like a you know, message. This is just classic. You know, when someone's worried, they text you first, you know. Uh, Everything okay? Dot, dot, you know. So they sent him a message to Joseph saying, your father gave you this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of your servants, of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Joseph's brothers also came and fell down before him. Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me. A pause. What is Joseph saying? They planned and they brought about the kidnapping, the enslavement, and the faking of his death, right? Among other things. They kidnapped him, they sold him into slavery, and they faked his death. And they meant it. They planned it. It wasn't accidental. It was purposed, right? That's what Joseph means when he says, you meant evil. But God meant it for good. Now, in grammar... When you've got a parallel construction like this, without a very good reason to do otherwise, you kind of have to make the parallel phrases mean roughly the same thing. And so you're going to have a really hard time doing what people want to do with this, which is you meant it for evil, but God turned it for good. Now, I want to lie to do that. Whatever you make you meant, God meant has to be something approximating that. God meant it. And then what makes it rougher in the Hebrew is in the Hebrew, um, okay, Anyone taken an inclined, declined foreign language, like masculine, feminine words, like Spanish masculine, feminine? Okay. So when you've got a pronoun, when you've got a pronoun in those types of languages, it has to agree with the noun. A pronoun stands in the place of another noun. He stands in the place of, in English, a masculine thing. She stands in the place of a feminine thing, and it stands in the place of a neuter thing, right? Um, so in Hebrew, the it is feminine, which means it's antecedent. What the it references is the evil, ra'ah, which in Hebrew is feminine. So in the grammar of the Hebrew, there's no doubt you meant the evil for good, is what Joseph is saying. You meant evil against me, but God meant it, namely that evil for good. God meant your evil. He planned, intended it to happen for good. I don't know how that works. I'm just saying, I think the Bible says that's the way things work. So please don't mistake me for like having a chart that's going to lay it all out and here's how it works. Give you a harder example. Go to uh, 2 Samuel 24. Second Samuel 24, 1. David is about to make a very foolish and wicked census. Uh, God didn't want his kings to trust in their power, so he... Were, forbade the uh, 2 Samuel 24, sorry, 24-1. He forbade kings of Israel from making censuses. You aren't to know exactly how big your army is. And let's look at 2 Samuel 24-1. Again, 
the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go and number Israel. That's just tough on its own. Especially when you read verse 10. David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people, and David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in doing the thing that you incited me to do. David doesn't know the Lord incited him to do it. Let's make it even tougher. Let's go to 1 Chronicles 21.1, the parallel account, because Chronicles, 1 and 2 Chronicles cover many of the events of 1 and 2 Samuel and Kings. So 1 Chronicles 21.1, you're going to notice a little, something a little different here. First Chronicles 21.1. Then Satan stood up against Israel and said to David's member Israel. Same event, verse 8. David said to God, I've sinned greatly in what I've done. So we got the text of the Bible attributing three actors, three agents, to one and the same event. God, Satan, and David. And David confessing it is sin. And again, I have to conclude, either the world works in such a way that David can do this and God can move him to do this. And in this case, I would guess, God is the, um, Satan is the immediate agent of temptation. Standing behind him in his sovereignty is God, is the ultimate, which then squares with James. God himself tempts no one. Well, he didn't himself. Satan did it. But in such a way that God can say, I did that. You know, that's... And, and, I'm just looking at passes. These are tough, but you either got to look these square in the face or stick your head in the sand. You're either going to come out thinking there's contradictions in the Bible, come out believing in the sovereignty of God, or you're just going to ignore these passages because they're scary. I'll give you another one. Let's go to Revelation uh, 17. And in that first message... Um, in that series on election predestination, we walk through all these passages over about an hour as a PowerPoint. You can download that from our website. So if you want a, a much fuller treatment on this, rather than the 20 minutes we're spending right now, you can go on to our website and, and check that out. Um, Revelation 17, 16, and 17. Now here, we're going to read about some of the most wicked people ever. The beast... Um, let's just actually start in verse 15. The angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitutes seated and the peoples and multitudes of nations and languages. The mul- okay, no. The waters that you saw were the prostitutes. Where? No. Are the peoples and the multitudes of nations and languages. Got it. Grammar. Okay. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. Why? Why would the beast... And the ten horns do such a thing. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. So the reader of the book of Revelation is to understand that everything these satanically inspired beings are doing is nothing but God's purpose and will, even as what they do is wicked. Let's go to Acts chapter 4, I think 4, maybe it's 3. Early church, prayer after imprisonment. Um, let's see. Uh, 
Acts, Acts 4. So um, Peter and John are arrested and beaten and released. Verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything that is in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, and they cite Psalm 2, Why did the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly, in this city... They were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles, the peoples of Israel. Now pause. They've just attributed this to the nations raging and warring. Truly, they say the scripture is true when it says the nations hate and plot and kick and revile and and, and bristle at God and his anointed. As they do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. They see it both and. We're tempted to think once we've established human agency or divine agency, it excludes the other. The reason why the word compatibilism is coined is the belief that these are compatible and not exclusive concepts. So just because we've established the human agency, Joseph's brothers planned this thing, does not mean we've said, therefore, God had nothing to do with it. And likewise, if we say God planned this thing or God did this thing, somehow that lets people off the hook and that means we were just all robots or puppets or whatever. The the whole point of compatibilism is the notion that these are compatible concepts. Or the word concurrence means concurring, things working in concert together. Um, That's that's the idea. And this, of course, go to Romans 8, 9. Romans 9, I mean. Paul looks the implication square in the face. And he doesn't have, well, he, you probably won't like his answer. <laughs> but I do take comfort that Paul looks the implication in the face. Um, so, Romans 9. And this will tie back to your question, Jamie. So, Romans 9. Let's pick it up in verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. Actually, we got to go further back than that. Sorry. We're picking up mid-argument. Verse 6. It's not as though the word of God has failed. Everyone, not everyone, Romans 9 is known as the really heavy, hard chapter on the sovereignty of God and predestination. You understand, Paul is bringing out these heavy, difficult doctrines um, to defend this proposition. Really, all of 9, 10, 11 is defending verse 6. He's dealing with the fact that God made these promises to Israel, numerous promises to Israel. And Israel as a people and Israel as a nation, by and large, rejected their Messiah and are perishing. So how can you trust God's promises? I ended this morning's message by reading the end of Romans 8. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. And I think it's as though Paul anticipates someone saying, yeah, Paul, that sounds nice and all, but look at Israel. Something sure looks like it separated them. And then he brings all this stuff out to, it's not as though the word of God failed. Um, And so he begins to talk about God's choosing purpose. And he does it through a series of rhetorical questions. So the first point he establishes is that not every child born to these people is a child of promise. So God chose Abraham, but 
which of his sons gets the promise? Both of them? No, Isaac. And then Isaac has two sons, and the promise only goes to one of them. And so we zoom in here um, to verse 10. Not only so, but also Rebekah had, when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our father Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger, as it's written, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. Daniel, by the way, does a fantastic job in that series of dealing with does this mean God chose to hate Esau for no reason in Esau. I don't think that's what it means. I'll let you listen to Daniel deal with that. That's the, that's, he deals with the issue of um, unconditional damnation. Is that Does the Bible teach that or sometimes called double predestination? Um, and you can check that out. Um, verse 14, in response to what he just said, Jacob, I love you, yes, I hated what shall we say then? Is there injustice with God? Which is ultimately, I think, where the objection comes to. If what you're saying is true, Pastor Jeremy, then how does God condemn people to hell? If Joseph's brothers, on the one hand, did what he purposed, if, if those who gathered together to crucify Jesus only did what your predetermined plan in hand had determined would take place, that's exactly where Paul's going, which suggests to me I'm reading him rightly. Um, the fact that the very objections that come up in our minds are the ones Paul's anticipating. Okay, by no means, verse 15, for he says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. He's citing there the first real um, self-revelation of God verbally in the Old Testament to Moses. I mean, he appears to Abraham, but the first time he starts talking about himself is to Moses, and Moses goes up on the mountain, he intercedes to the people of Israel because of the golden calf, and he says, show me your glory, and God says, I'll show you my glory, and I'll walk by you, and I'll tell you my name, and then when he tells him his name, he says, the Lord, the Lord of God, abounding in loving kindness and steadfast love, but who will by no means clear the guilty, and I will have mercy, and I have mercy, and I have compassion, and I have compassion. And what he's saying is God, from the very first time he said, hello, I'm God, and here's what I'm like, has made it clear, I reserve the prerogative. Part of my glory is my freedom to mercy whomever I please. I'm free. God's the only truly free person in existence in that he, he's not contingent. There's another word, contingent. He, he, he doesn't fundamentally respond. He acts. Um, and so God... When he reveals his glory to Moses, you want to know my glory, Moses? My glory is my freedom to mercy whomever I want to mercy. And so Paul is saying, if this is challenging, keep in mind, from the very first time God says, hey, I'm God, let me tell you about myself. In Exodus 34, this, is, this isn't like a bait and switch. He's, from day one, I'm mercy my mercy. Um, and have compassion, I have compassion. 16, so then, and then as we're looking at human work, and we're looking at human agency and divine agency. We're not excluding the one or the other. He says it does not depend. You have to, if you want to be a Christian, if you want to be saved, you must believe. You must. But it does not depend upon your belief. So then it does not depend on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Because ultimately... He's saying, God has chosen and God is working in those people, so the ultimate dependency is on God. Even though those people must truly repent and believe, those people must truly put their trust in Christ, it doesn't depend on them for that. That's not the, that's not the critical piece. The critical piece is God's choice and God's purpose and God's working. Um, 
for Scripture so that it does not depend on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And then he's going to cite a negative example. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Conclusion. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. And then Paul completely anticipates our question. You will then say to me, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Which is exactly the objection that comes up when I start laying this stuff out. And Paul's answer is similar to God's answer to Job. Who are you, a man, to answer back to God? So I think it's fine. Let me be clear. I think it's fine to come like children to God and say, God, I don't understand. This is difficult. These are heavy, difficult things. Um, these are hard teachings, right? So Jesus talks about eating his flesh and drinking his blood in John 6, and disciples say, this, this is a hard teaching. And then and P- Peter doesn't get it either. Jesus says, what, do you want to leave too? And Peter just, I don't understand what you're saying, but you alone are the words of life. I know that, so I'm not going anywhere. It's fine to, to work through a passage or a doctrine like this and say, <laughs> that's, that's hard. Um, that's okay. But if you're going to, like Job, call God to court, explain yourself then you get the answer Job got, which is, who are you, a man, to answer back to God? Now, to get to your question, Paul is going to engage in some inspired speculation. He's going to do that in verse 22. Oh, he's going to do it before verse 22. He's going to do that in uh, verse 21. As the potter, you know, right over the clay, to make one vessel of the same lump, one vessel for honorable and another for dishonorable use. And then here's your speculation, Jamie. What if... God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even on those whom he's called from the Jews only, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. What if God ultimately just wanted to show his justice and his mercy? What if, what if that's what God wanted to do? He wanted to have some people who got what they deserved, and he wanted us to have some people who got grace. What if, what if? And so what if? It's an inspired what if, so I don't want to take it too lightly. But it's like, the basic question is, what do you got to say to that? I mean, what do I have to say to that? You're God, okay, amen. Worship. That's, that's, so again, Paul doesn't say, let me bust out my chart, my flow chart, and share how this all works. But he does, I think, insist that's how it works. And at the end of the day, we've got to trust God with it. Anyway, that, that was a long answer. We've got three minutes. Any questions on that? There's a whole series. Oh, in the back, Mr. Kruger, microphone. There's a whole series. This is a heavy enough topic that I would not ask you to take my word for it on a 15-minute question and answer. There's a four-week sermon series. There's other people who've done even better jobs. John Piper's got some great stuff on this eight-part series to this stuff. So this is, this is heavy stuff. But um, go. Well, I think the question is why the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And I think it's God's way of showing us the sin in it and what it is. Mm. It's rebellion against God. All creatures rebelling against the Creator. Mm. And by having that, because wouldn't they eventually have sinned somehow, even if it wasn't there? I, I don't know. I mean, now we're, but, now we're very... But it kind of gives that concise knowledge to us what sin is. Well, let, the, let me say this. Paul says in Romans 5... 12 and 13, where there is no law, transgression is not counted. If God had not given any command, there could be no sin. 
I can say that, right? Okay, so, right. Or there could be no imputation. There could be no reckoning or counting of sin. So sin is not imputed where there's no law. So if God had made the man a woman and given no commands, there would be no sin. There'd be no sin. So you can even go back even further. Why give him a rule? Why make him and give him a law? Because the law could have been anything. Don't eat this tree, stand this side of the garden. I mean, I'm not saying it's arbitrary, but the real issue is he gave them a rule to break that they could break. He could have just not given them a rule. He could have just blessed them, and that was the end of it. Be fruitful, be multiplying. Have a nice day. And he gives them a law, and they break it. But that sets in course the plan of redemption. Um, so, yeah, it's... It's to show his grace and to humble us. Another way you could look at it is God has tried through so many different means to try. God has demonstrated through so many different means our weakness, whether it's the perfect Edenic condition, whether it's him working through a family with Abraham and Isaac, and we watch the patriarchs as God's working through families, whether it's working through a nation, whether it's working through his church, whether it's even in the new heavens and the new earth, uh, not in the new heavens and the earth, in the kingdom, where people rebel against him, and Jesus, I mean, God has a street address in the kingdom. When Jesus is reigning on earth, like, like he has a physical, you know, you, you could, you could uh, what's the term when you get those, G, you could GPS him. I mean, Jesus is in Syria today, you know, you, that, you could do that. And with a resurrected body, there's a sense in which Jesus is in Syria more than he is other places. Like, his, his resurrected body is not omnipresent. Um, and they're still going to rebel. And so what we're seeing, and this is even stage one, is our brokenness. We, we need a redeemer. We're not self-sufficient, good little people who make mistakes. We're bad little people. <laughs> you know. Um, anyway, we are out of time. I'll be having to stick around for a few minutes. Have a blessed Memorial Day weekend. Get some rest, and I'll see you all next week. And if you think of it, pray for my wife.